So, Will. Yes? This week's movie is called Bringing Up Baby. You can imagine that that conjures up a certain image in your head of what this movie would be about. Namely, a baby. And as you will find out, that is very much not what this movie is about. So I wanted to ask, what is the most misleading movie title that you've come across? I don't know that misleading is the right word, but I spent a lot of last fall convincing people to see Parasite and needing to warn them that it wasn't a horror movie. Like people who just heard that title and assumed that's scary and I don't want it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I was a little worried about that too, because I was also told not to go in knowing anything about it, so I didn't want to look up the plot, but it did sound scary. But it's not really. No. But also, I will say, there is also a thing where I sometimes will see a movie and understand that my family will like it, but know that if I describe it, they won't think they'll like it. So I saw Parasite opening weekend in the U.S. and then texted my family that they should go see what I thought was one of the funniest movies of the year. An explanation that I stand by, but some of my family claimed that I misled them into thinking they were seeing a comedy. I was thinking of a movie which actually then changed the name because I first thought of Edge of Tomorrow, which to me, when I hear it, I'm thinking like the first time I heard Edge of Tomorrow, I was thinking like, Nicholas Sparks movie. Or at Edge the very of seventeen least, like almost. Green. Right. And instead it was not that. And then they changed the name to something very the opposite, as in the most literal you could get, live, die, repeat. Which was the slogan on the poster. And it's like a good catchphrase right. on a poster, but it's a bad title. I stand by Edge of Tomorrow as the better name for the movie, but it still did kind of like throw me off. Well, you know that the plan is to call the sequel Live, Die, Repeat, Repeat. Absolutely not. You're shitting me. I kid you not. That is the plan. Of course, first, the director of those movies, Doug Lyman, is signed on to direct the Tom Cruise Actually in Space movie. Oh. Huh. You know about I that, I guess right? we've, got a, we've, we've got a while, then. Tom Cruise and Doug Lyman, together with Christopher McQuarrie who has a writing credit on Edge of Tomorrow and has written and directed the most recent Mission Impossible movies, they convinced Universal Studios to finance a movie shot in space. It's such a waste of money. You can do such good space movies without going to space. Look at Gravity. They even got the hair all funny. I will say, though, I can't wait. Another one I was thinking of is Mystic River which I thought would be much more mystical than it turned out to be. I thought it was going to be about pizza. <laughs> I feel like that movie name makes more sense, but it's still kind of odd. The only thing I know about Mystic Pizza is the joke in 30 Rock about it. Oh, absolutely. When life keeps sending you anchovies, just cover them <laughs> up with some extra cheese and make a pizza. Exactly. But yeah, Mystic River, I uh, my parents turned it on, and I was not expecting a hard-boiled crime drama with Julianne Margulies in it. No, you expect The Bridges of Madison County. Not even that. I was hoping for something much more, like, fantastic. Oh, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> At that point, I also hadn't watched The Good Wife, so I did not fully appreciate Julianne Margulies, who is such a good actress that towards the end of The Good Wife, in scripts, they didn't even give her lines because she could convey everything with her face. Okay. It was just like, Alicia looks at the camera. But yeah, I do feel like adult dramas often fall into that zone where it's like, you know, you watch the Pelican Brief. What's in it? I was like, I don't know, but I thought there might be a bird. That's definitely part of it. Wait, I think Juliana Margulies was not in Mystic River. What movie am I thinking of? Who am I thinking of? 
What is this river? I may not know what this movie is. Dude, still. I haven't seen Mystic River. <laughs> <laughs> no one's seen Mystic River. It's a Clint Eastwood drama film. It was like on TV. Marsha Gay Harden. Excuse me. Sorry, Marsha. Anyway, that movie also apparently is still confusing me to this day. She got an Oscar nomination for that movie. Yeah. I just didn't want to talk about the real lead because he's a disgusting person. Yeah. Yeah. Sean Penn. No good. No good. Very bad man. Well, uh, now anyway, that we've had should... this revelation, should we move on? <laughs> yeah, should we start talking about this very strange movie? It's a weird movie. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. And this is a podcast dedicated to answering the ever important question. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or if it's a one scene flirtation or if... There's not so much romance as there is, like, hostile and manipulative hijinks that then result in a declaration of love. We'll dig in and see what's there. And this week we are doing it with the 1938 Howard Hawks screwball comedy, Bringing Up Baby. I just gotta say at the start, did not expect Baby to be a leopard. No one had warned me. I had no idea that the baby they were referring to was a tame leopard that was a just shipped into the city of New York. How has this never come up? I feel like I know enough about movies where I would have heard of this because this is insane. And yet... I've heard of bringing up baby. I knew who was in it, but I did not know that there was a jaguar in it. It's a leopard. Leopard. It should be a jaguar, but it's a leopard. I was so confused. So you had also not seen this movie before? No, definitely not. We both watched it for the first time, and we were both surprised to see a leopard. There was not a single person in this under the age of, like, 25. There were no babies nearby. Yeah, that's true. They also weren't bringing up baby because the baby was already tame. Well, if you consider North to be up, they were literally bringing it up from New York to Connecticut. I guess. But yeah, that leopard didn't even need to be brought up because it was already a tame leopard. Yeah, that's a very good point that I had not gotten to. I just was so thrown. And what kind of aunt just is like, oh, nephew, get me a tame leopard. Where are tame leopards? Even if it was a cheetah, it would have made more sense because those are like fairly easier to tame in some way. But I've never heard of a tame leopard. That's just like not a thing. Rich people, man. Ugh, I hated it. That poor leopard too. Apparently the trainer was like holding a whip just off screen the whole movie. Which was sometimes necessary because one time it went for Catherine Hepburn's dress. Well, yes, because it's a leopard. It is not a, like, it's a ferocious animal. Yeah. They're so cute, though. So, it's worth noting that Bringing Up Baby is based on a short story that was published in Collier's magazine in 1937. And in that story, David is not a paleontologist, and he and Susan are engaged from the start. And Susan is sent a panther to give to her aunt. And so the whole story doesn't have the screwball romance thing because they're already together. It is just about them trying to wrangle a panther in the Connecticut wilderness with the help of I can't give you anything but love. That movie weirdly makes more sense to me. Yes, because this one hangs a lot on the screwball elements of the movie. I will say there are a lot of sequences in this movie that I liked. As a whole, I found it exhausting. It was just too much. I realized pretty early on that there 
jokes went on too long in terms of like when her dress was torn it took too long for her to figure out that her dress was torn and react to it like she just walked away from him a couple too many times if that makes sense yeah now this is a movie that has a mixed reception over the years at the time it came out it was a big hit in some of the cities on the west coast in some southern cities and it was well received by some critics there but it was a huge flop in new york and in the midwest and it wound up barely breaking even. In the years since then, in part thanks to replays on TV starting in the 1950s, it's gotten a more positive public reputation. It was placed 88th on the 2007 AFI 100 list. But even as it's building that reputation, there are still people who agree with us that it's got some good elements, but goes too far. Actually, Howard Hawks, the director himself, said that he learned a lot from what he considered the mistakes of this movie, primarily the fact that, like, there is no audience surrogate. Everybody is screwballing at 11 for the entire movie. I needed, like, more of his fiance or something. Someone to just come in and bring the level down. Or just, like, a breather. Right, or the cop to be an actually, like, good cop or just something, because there's no break. Well, the cop, Constable Slocum, is played by Walter Catlett, who was a vaudeville comedian they hired to coach Catherine Hepburn on comedy performance. So he was not going to be our deliverance. No, she was very fun in this. I did really enjoy her performance, even if it got exhausting because there was no one to take it down. Yeah, I agree with you. I think the performances are fun. I think individual sequences are really enjoyable, which makes talking about this movie kind of complicated. Right. Because if we talk about any one scene, I like a lot of what's going on, but... I was just worn out by it. Yeah. And I have enjoyed the other Howard Hawks movies I've watched, too. Like, I th- I've i seen The Big Sleep and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes and enjoy both of them. But it's worth noting, he makes those movies, like, 15 years after this. Yeah. I think The Big Sleep was, like, less than 10 years after this. His Girl Friday, I didn't realize, was only two years after this. And that movie is more fun, too, but I haven't seen the whole thing. Sure. But I do particularly love Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. I don't know if you've seen that one. I have not. It's so fun. So speaking of Hawks, it's worth noting that he was not originally trying to make this. He was hired by RKO for a two-picture deal, and the first one was supposed to be an adaptation of Gunga Din. But that was delayed because they had cast Clark Gable, Spencer Tracy, and Franchot Tom, who were all under contract with MGM. So they had to wait for their contracts to run out. So while that was going on, Hawks got attached to bringing up baby and actually as a result of its flop status rko broke their contract and they were like we don't want you making any other movies for us and it was after this movie too that the president of the independent theater owners of america published his famous box office poison article telling studios these are the actors that while they might be good actors nobody goes to see and included katherine hepburn on that list which is just insane Because did she have flops before this too? Yes, this was one of a couple of flops. And she also had a reputation as being difficult for the traditional Hollywood publicity machine because, and I think this is part as a result of the fact that her independent wealth freed her from having to do it, she wouldn't go in on a lot of the annoying Hollywood publicity myth-making stuff that we talked about in our last episode. Which I so respect her for which is not to say there's no myth making around her she just was the keeper of her own myth right i love that she just wore pants that alone was a radical act the fact that she just wore pants almost all the time and found great pants to wear yeah it's strange to see her in a dress in some scenes in this 
How about that polka dot nightgown she wears? I mean, Will, her robe had shoulder pads in it. You've just got Catherine Hepburn lounging in a transparent polka dot nightgown with a leopard lounging at her feet. It's insane. This movie is more in love with Catherine Hepburn than like any other I've seen. It was partially written for her too. It's interesting because she talks so fast that her crazy transatlantic accent is like less noticeable in a way. Right, she's just relentless. It's still like hearing that accent always just makes me so enraged because it makes no sense at all. It's just this made up accent to make rich people sound smarter. Like that's all it is. But it works. Uh, She's just so good. She's fantastic. At everything. Also, wasn't Philadelphia Story, like, 1940? That box office poison did not last that long. No, it did not. I did some reading on the box office poison article. So there's a whole list of people who are included in it. Greta Garbo, Marlena Dietrich, Mae West, Joan Crawford, Kay Francis, Norma Shearer, Louise Rayner, John Barrymore, Dolores Del Rio, Catherine Hepburn, Edward Arnold, Fred Astaire. And what I loved was Mae West, who replied to the article just by saying, For starters, people do go see my movies. And secondly, the only picture to make real money was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. That movie was so much better than I remembered. Snow White? It rules. <laughs> I rewatched Snow White recently, and I still find her voice to be a little annoying, but the animation is just incredible. It's unbelievable. It's especially fun because a lot of the old shorts are on Disney+. Plus. You can really see some of the development from Steamboat Willie forward to Snow White, watching that stuff in sequence. And I will say, having watched more movies from the 30s, Snow White's voice doesn't bother me as much because she sounds like a 30s movie star. She does. And I mean, it's like very much of that era. It matches, but it's still just a little, I don't know. It's just so different from even like the next Disney movie. So it kind of just threw me off. Well, you know what Pinocchio doesn't have is female characters. The next Disney princess movie. Oh my God, there's not a single woman in Pinocchio. There's the Blue Fairy. There's the Blue Fairy. Okay. There is one, and she is not a human woman. Yeah, there's not another princess until Cinderella in 1950, so that's 13 years later. Oh, wow. I didn't realize there was such a big gap, because, I mean, the Disney princess brand is so monolithic now. Right, but these things come out pretty far apart from one another. Yeah. Anyway, back to Bringing Up Baby. Bringing Up Baby was, as we said, kind of a flop on release. It also was way more expensive than RKO had wanted. It went 40 days over schedule and $330,000 over budget, in part because of overtime clauses in actor contracts. So most of the actors wound up making close to double their initial salaries. Oh my god. And like, it's good that people get paid overtime. But also, Howard Hawks was late to set a lot. Is that really why? I was assuming it was because the fact that they had a full leopard that would cause some trouble on set. There were a lot of reasons. I can't imagine it was easy filming with that leopard. Probably not, but also, like, they filmed a lot more movies with animals like that back then. Yeah. I would have been so stressed. You have a much stronger circus economy, too, so, like, just the tame animal thing is much easier to access. I would have just been so stressed to be in the same scene as an animal that could kill me with, like, one swipe of its paw. So, in a lot of cases, they're using traveling map backgrounds, so people aren't actually in the same scene. They are shifting backgrounds around to make it look like they are in the same scene as the leopard. Also, sometimes the leopard's a puppet. Really? I didn't even notice, but, like, there are moments where the leopard is, like, nuzzling Susan and David, Mm -hmm. and it's just kind of stressful to watch. Oh, totally. 
And let's keep in mind, while only one leopard is used in real life, in the movie, there are two leopards. It's also very clear that it's the same leopard. Yes. But uh, that's just an example of how this movie is always escalating. Oh, yeah. Somehow there is a second leopard. That's when it just gets to the point where you're kind of like, oh, we did not need a second leopard. Around the time the second leopard comes up, and especially by the time they get to jail, I'm just so worn out. So then you have, like, Catherine Hepburn doing her incredible swinging door Sally, like, gangster impression, which is fantastic, but I'm too worn out to focus on it by then. Right. Speaking of animal actors, though... Oh, this I know where movie you're going. Has some crossover with another We Love the Love episode. The same dog that played Asta in The Thin Man plays George. What's his name? George the Terrible Dog. George the Terrible Dog in this one. I want to say he's probably not. I, he steals a lot of shoes. I mean, the reason he's barking so much at David and Susan has got to be because they smell like leopard. <laughs> that probably throws off a dog. <laughs> But yeah, he's also just a bad dog. Yeah, he buries a lot of things in the yard. That is not a thing I've ever experienced in real life that movies led me to believe was an inevitability. Well, I'm glad for you. But yeah, that was interesting. I looked that up. His name is Skippy. Yes, Skippy the dog. He's no Jimmy the Parrot, but he's a good animal actor. Jimmy the Parrot. Jimmy the Crow. Call Cut. Jimmy oh, the Crow. Jimmy the Crow. I thought you meant the parrot from Dr. Doolittle that called Cut. No, that that bird is a hero. <laughs> that bird they should have just listened to that bird and cut cut forever cut and run no i met jimmy the crow from it's a wonderful life who was in like 200 movies what a good crow should we talk about bringing up baby a movie that is not about a baby yeah i think we should get into it you basically get everything in plot wise yeah because there's not a ton of plot no i at the same was- time that there's so much yeah, in her When Rom Met Com column at the AV Club, Caroline Side noted that it doesn't so much have a plot as, like, just enough to thread some different comedy scenes together, which I think is accurate. It's just hijinks with a tiny thread that links them all together. So every week we break down the romantic plot line of a movie into five points to help us make sense of what's going on. So for bringing up Baby, point number one has to start at the Natural History Museum. Or, as it's called in this, the Stuyvesant Natural History Museum. Yes, of course. Which I assume was a, they didn't want to use the National Natural History Museum name. Or the New York Museum of Natural History. Oh, yeah. That's what I was thinking of. All right, I'm Yes, but I have to go to Carnegie Hall to meet Miss Swallow. Miss Swallow? Yes, I'm engaged to Miss Swallow. Engaged to be married? That's right. Oh, that's nice. Then she won't mind waiting, will she? Oh, well, I wouldn't like to... I mean, if I were engaged to you, I wouldn't mind waiting at all. So, this is where we meet David, played by Cary Grant, who is on the early end of his career at this point. Looking good. Yeah, he is. We hear a lot from Susan that he looks better without his glasses. What do you think? (laughs) One of the few cases where I think I agree. Yeah, but he still looks good with his glasses. Yes, he always looks good. I read that Christopher Reeve based his Clark Kent performance in part on... Cary Grant as David, and I can really see that connective tissue. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The annoying thing about David is he's supposed to be the straight man, but he just loses it so fast. Right, that's the problem. He becomes equally lunatic. So he is a paleontologist, and he has spent the last four years 
building a brontosaurus skeleton. Which apparently is now back to being a real thing. Yes, uh, brontosaurus is a real dinosaur once again, because they determined that a dinosaur, which is not what we originally called brontosaurus, like what we called brontosaurus was just a potosaurus. And actually, even in the 1930s, there were some paleontologists being like, I don't know that this is different enough. Then, in the 21st century, paleontologists discovered a new sauropod and named it Brontosaurus because they were like, look, people really want there to be a Brontosaurus. Yeah, it's a good name. So he's making a Brontosaurus. He's spent four years on it. And the final piece is a day out from Utah, which means that, most auspiciously, he will finish his dinosaur the same day that he will get married to his assistant. She is a lot. She immediately is like, yes, we are getting married, but I don't want any domestic entanglements. No kids, no honeymoon, probably no sex, because this is going to be a celebration of your work. And it's just like, Alice, girl, you deserve some happiness too. Come on. It feels like it's pretty clear that David is not on board with the no domestic entanglements thing. Like he wants to go on a honeymoon and do all that stuff, but he is so timid that he just goes along with Alice's demands. Right. I don't even know if he really wants to marry Alice that much. It's possible she just decided they're getting married. What is her position, too? Like, what is her job title? She definitely works at the museum, but I'm not sure what her job is. Like, is she his assistant, as I said, or is she his boss? It's hard to know. Could be either. But yeah, they're getting married tomorrow afternoon. And there's, like, no ceremony or anything either. I think it's just gonna be a a courthouse thing. Maybe, uh, you know, like a gold diggers situation where you just get married at the courthouse and then it's front page news the next day. Exactly. But this brings us to point two, when Alice says that you have a meeting to potentially get a $1 million donation for the museum. Yeah, this dude Peabody represents a wealthy old lady who is planning to donate a million dollars. So David goes to play golf with Peabody to try to win him over into giving the money to the museum. And David is no good at golf. Well, we... Oh, yeah, I guess we do know that, because his first hit ends up on the 18th green. Yeah, so he goes to track down his ball and discovers Susan, played by Catherine Hepburn, has just found his ball and is playing it. So Susan is literally taking his ball. Oh, David, don't be irrelevant. The point is, I have a leopard. The question is, what am I going to do with it? Well, Susan, I regret to say the leopard is your problem. You mean you refuse to help me? But, David, you can't do that. You can't leave me alone with a leopard. No, I'm going to come and get you in my... Susan, what happened? Is it the leopard? Susan is an entirely fake person. There's no reality in this character. She's a maniac. But she's very fun. Yeah, and part of what makes her character run is that she is just talking incredibly quickly nonstop. David comes to try to get his ball, and she just keeps running. David gives up, walks away. She goes to get in her car to drive off. His car is blocking her, so she rams his car repeatedly before just getting in his car and deciding to drive that one away. The thing that I don't get, why are they able to just take, like, drive cars off? Do they not have keys to turn on the car? I think people just left their keys in the car. I've been watching a lot of movies over the last couple of months because I've been at home, and I've watched a lot of stuff from decades past where people's keys are just, like, in the little thing, the, like, sun blocker above the windshield. I'm like, if everyone's doing that, how is it hidden? Why would you just make it so easy for your car to be stolen? If you know why people kept their keys in their cars when they weren't there, please tweet at us with the hashtag KeyUsIn. Again, that's hashtag KeyUsIn to tell us... Why people left their keys in their car. We're good without that one. 
That would that would hurt. I th- also thought about answer our question. K e y s t i o n. I like that one more, honestly. Right. Then the hashtag is hashtag answer our question. I like it when they're more forced. So yeah, she steals his car, and is that really resolved? Like, does she get out of his car, or does she just drive off with him on the sideboard and then? I they think cut. she drives off with him on the sideboard, and then he returns to the club house at the golf course, trying to meet up with Peabody to get the money, where she is playing with the olives. And she's trying to do, like, close-up magic with olives and drops some on the floor, so he slips and crushes his hat. <laughs> it's so over the top. The amount of just falls in this movie. There are a lot of pratfalls in this movie. I th- That one was one of my favorites, I think. I yeah, love that. and then he has to walk around with this crushed hat. Right, because he's in Top Hat and Tails. Because, you know, after you play golf, you have to have your tuxedo just on you. And it's worth noting that Susan is totally oblivious and has never really listened to what he has said about, like, you're playing with my ball, you're taking my car, what's going on? So she is wandering through and runs into a psychiatrist, and she's like, why would a man follow me around and fight with me all the time? And the answer is, you happen to be going to the same places, and you're tormenting him. And the psychiatrist is like, oh, he must be in love with you. At which point Susan says, great, I guess I'll be in love with him too. Yep, so Susan's just decided that they are in love. And that will motivate her for the rest of the movie, is this one conversation with a psychiatrist in a restaurant. Truly insane. She's just so over the top. Yeah, and around this time, they get in a fight on the stairs, and she storms off, and his foot is on her dress, and that's when the back of her dress rips off, and he has to walk around behind her, shielding her from showing off her scandalous undergarments. Right. He uses his hat to hide her butt, and obviously she's very annoyed at that, and I enjoyed it, but then it just went on a little too long. I thought this part was fun. I like him trying to hide her bloomers. I think there could have just been a one last move away from the wall and then back to the wall. That said, like, this is an example of finding ways to press your leads up right against each other without violating the production code. Yeah. Because it's not sex, he's being a gentleman. Yeah, and they are as close together as can be. By this point, he has missed Peabody, and she's like, oh, well, just hang out with me. And she takes him to Peabody's house where they chuck rocks at the windows. Because he happens to be her lawyer, too. And by this point, I think every listener has pieced together that she is also associated with the billion dollars. Yeah, obviously. Right. So they chuck rocks at the window. What does she call Peabody? It's like Doopy or something? Yeah, something like that. It's weird. Some endearment that's clear she knows him quite well. Right. The weird trope of people being very close to their lawyers in movies. Yeah. David goes home defeated, and he wakes up the next day, the morning of his wedding. And A, very exciting, he gets the bone from Utah. And then B, he gets a phone call from Susan that she needs help with the leopard her brother mailed her. She thinks that he is a zoologist. And so she's like, oh, he knows animals. I need his help. And to get him to come over because he's refusing to have anything to do with her, she fakes a leopard attack over the phone. Yeah, she pretends the leopard is just mauling her. And then he shows up and she's in a nice dress and he immediately is like, so you just lied to me. All right, cool. And then she's like, look, all I need from you is to help me take this leopard to my aunt's house in Connecticut. And he obviously is like, no, I'm not going to do that because I am terrified of this leopard that and could kill me. And I'm married at three o'clock. Yeah. A thing that the movie seems to frequently forget. I forgot it repeatedly that it was that day. Yeah. Uh, it was bizarre. So they go to Connecticut 
along the way, they steal a car. To avoid getting a ticket for parking in front of a fire plug. And that takes us to point number three, where they are at Aunt Elizabeth's Connecticut cottage. What do you want? Well, who are you? I don't know. I'm not quite myself today. Well, you look perfectly idiotic in those clothes. These aren't my clothes. Well, where are your clothes? I've lost my clothes. Well, why are you wearing these clothes? Because I just went gay all of a sudden. They lock up the leopard baby in her stables, which I guess luckily there are no horses in there because I can't imagine they would have taken to a leopard. Yeah. Then David is like, all right, we brought the leopard. Now I want to go home and get married. And Susan's like, no, you can't get married. You're a mess. Why don't you take a shower? And while he's in the shower, Susan takes his clothes and sends them into town to be pressed. The maid's like, I can do it faster here. But she's like, no, I want them gone into town so that David will be trapped there. Because Susan's plan at this point is just to trap him with her and hope that he will fall in love with her. (laughs) Hey, it works out. Literally unbelievably. Yeah. Then he's like running around in her nightgown. At one point he yells out, I just went gay all of a sudden to explain wearing the robe. And I don't think it means gay as in gay, but I think it's like gay as in happy. And I'm not sure because it could be either one. There's a lot of debate about that line, actually, when some people come into the house and are like, what's going on with this dude? And they're not listening to his explanations. So he shouts, I just turned gay. There's not a consensus on that, in part because that line isn't in the script. It's improvised. Oh. So it's a question of what he specifically meant with that improvised line. Well, that adds a new twist, too. Right. And basically, there isn't a definite answer. The phrase gay, meaning homosexual, did exist in, like, the gay community at the time. So it's conceivable that Cary Grant had encountered it. And it had been used that way in, like, one or two movies prior to this. But it doesn't become widely used until, like, the 60s. Right. I mean, up until that point, it was much more on the DL, that word. But, I mean, based off some of the rumors, if anyone were to know what that word meant, Cary Grant would be one of them. Right. So it's interesting, but there's not a hard answer for you. Because Cary Grant, there are a lot of rumors about him. Yes. Considering he lived with another attractive male actor for 12 years in The Bachelor House. I think that's what they call it. Something like that. Just good friends. But his daughter has also denied those rumors, and so has other people. But it is just another interesting twist on that story. So there are a lot of hijinks while they're at Aunt Elizabeth's because David, for a while, is trying to leave. But George the Terrible Dog takes his dinosaur bone and buries it. So he and Susan wind up following George around the lawn, digging up wherever George stops. And they find a lot of boots, but they don't find the bone. Meanwhile, Susan has announced to her Aunt Elizabeth that David is a lunatic, but also Susan is in love with him. I just don't get that choice either. I mean, it's the only thing that really makes sense, but the aunt is truly just as bad about not listening. Yes, it must run in the family that none of these women listen to anybody else. If people had just stopped talking for 30 seconds, there would be no conflict in this movie. I think there would be some conflict because Susan would still be manipulating David. (laughs) Yeah, and Susan would still have a leopard. (laughs) But yeah, so David's just chasing the dog around looking for the bone. He's borrowed some ridiculous, like, horse riding clothes. Pantaloons. Yeah. And meanwhile, Aunt Elizabeth has invited over this wealthy big game hunter to try to make 
David feel comfortable? I guess the logic behind this dinner party is very strange. I was lost. I didn't really get who this big game hunter was or why he was there, to be honest. It doesn't really matter. Along the way, the leopard gets let out by the gardener. By their, like, drunken Irish gardener. And meanwhile, the circus in the next town over has decided to get rid of their man-eating leopard. So while David and Susan are running through the woods trying to find Baby, they instead encounter the circus guys with their leopard in a cage and are like, oh, this is our leopard. Let it go. And they release the second leopard into the woods. So now there are two leopards running around the woods of Connecticut. One is dangerous. One is not. And both are played by the same leopard. David and Susan get really wet trying to cross a stream to catch a leopard and just build a fire in the woods to dry off all their clothes. (laughs) What was that? It's How like long uncom- were they out there? It's uncomfortable being wet, but building a fire to dry your clothes has got to be slower than going back to the house and getting more clothes or a towel or something. I did enjoy when Susan points out that David's sock has caught fire and he's just totally defeated, like, whatever, it's fine. So then she throws his other sock on the fire. She's absolutely just hard to follow for sure but anyway they then keep chasing the leopard and eventually end up outside the same psychiatrist's house as before um by the way by now he has missed his wedding oh yes it's now nighttime my god they wind up outside the same psychiatrist's house as you said and the leopard is on the roof and they're singing i can't give you anything but love baby which is the one thing the leopard responds to and lights go on and david is worried about being identified so he hides in the bushes while Susan continues to sing. The psychiatrist and his wife can't see the leopard because it's above them. So they think she's crazy claiming to sing at a leopard on their roof. So they bring her in to have her arrested as a crazy person. Then David comes up to try to look through the window and see what's going on. So then he's arrested as a peeping Tom, which brings us to point four, which is a much too long sequence over the course of which every character gets arrested. Now look here, young fella. I want you to tell me just exactly what were you doing tonight. Well, yes, we sir. were hunting uh, for a leopard. Uh, you were hunting for a leopard. Mm. Now, 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 look here. Look here, young lady. Now, you know that's silly. There never was a leopard in the whole state of Connecticut. Well, there is now. Yeah. <clears throat> now, young lady, listen here. I'm going to stay here if it takes all year. I am waiting for you to tell the truth. Oh, if you're going to wait for her to tell the truth, you'll have a long gray beard down to here. This part, I... I got very lost and it dragged a lot. The best part of this sequence is when Susan gives up on the fact that the police are not listening to their story because their story is absurd. Everybody's talking about how they're looking for leopards and obviously there are no leopards in Connecticut. And Susan says, fine, you won't believe us. I will act like a criminal and does a parody of a gangster from a 30s crime movie. It was definitely the best part of this scene. Yeah, it's great. I would easily have enjoyed a movie where Katherine Hepburn played the leader of a 30s bank robbing gang. It's also fun because it shows the extent to which Hollywood has a sense of humor about itself in the 1930s. And then she also just like escapes in the middle of this. These are terrible cops. She lassos the violent leopard and hauls it into the station, thus proving that there were in fact leopards in Connecticut. Meanwhile, Alice swallows... Shows up in Connecticut. Not clear how she finds out David's there. Maybe Peabody the lawyer? Maybe. Because they show up together. And she tells David that she's through with him because he's been acting like a butterfly. Yeah, he's too flighty, I guess. I mean, if someone missed the wedding, I think that's very valid to reassess your relationship. Yes. 
But also, it seems like they shouldn't be married anyway. No, he did not seem very excited about it at all. So they get out because they established that the leopards were real and they weren't crazy in that particular way. Which brings us to our final scene. It's clear some amount of time has passed, but it's not clear how much. And Susan shows up at the Natural History Museum, having finally found the dinosaur bone. Oh, David, if I could only make you understand, you see... All that happened, happened because I was trying to keep you near me, and I just did anything that came into my head. I'm so sorry. But I ought to thank you. Thank me? Yes. You see, well, I've just discovered that was the best day I ever had in my whole life. And then just more shenanigans ensue. She climbs a ladder, announces that she's in love with David. David improbably announces that he is in love with her. Honestly, impossibly. And then she destroys four years of work by trying to climb on top of a dinosaur skeleton. Well, the ladder falls, and then she climbs on top of the skeleton to not fall with the ladder. Well, but then it the all falls down anyway. And forth. Yeah. Oh, my and God. And then they kiss. And then they kiss, and that's it. So, Mark, do you find the romance of bringing up baby believable? Absolutely not. Not even a little bit. There's not a single moment of tenderness between the two of them. No, it is, once again, in a different way... Much like with Alice, David is just beaten into submission. Right. It makes no sense that he would fall in love with her. There's no reason for it. He begins and ends the movie with a woman who just dominates him into saying he should be with them. Exactly. She loves to tell him how to feel. So every week we rate the believability of a movie's romance on a 10-point scale where 0 means we believe none of it, and 10 means we believe all of it. And I want to know where you would place bringing up baby. I'd give it a 1. I was also going to give it a 1. Because I believe that he and Alice might have wound up together at some point, and I believe that they would have broken up. Yeah. There is one element of believability to it. And everything involving Susan, while sometimes funny, is completely unbelievable. Do you think that Susan or David is dateable? Susan, absolutely not. (laughs) No, Susan's not a real person. Love Catherine Hepburn could not date Susan. David, I feel like also no. If David had been played like a better traditional comedy straight man, I'd be all about David. Paleontologist. Cary Grant. What more do you need? Sure. But he gets broken so fast, and he gets raised to an 11 so fast that I think he's a no, too. Okay, so for our next question, do you think that Susan and David would stay together? No. No. Like, eventually he will break. Yeah, he'll go insane. He'll have a nervous breakdown at some point soon. Seriously. Now, if you did have to pick one person in this movie to date, who would it be? Oof, that is rough. There are not a lot of options. I guess, like, the big game hunter. Oh, sure, Major Applegate. Major Applegate? I mean, I'm against big game hunting, but there's not a lot of options in this movie, and all he does is be nice to everyone and then try and protect them from a leopard. Yeah, I think that's definitely the move. Now, a lot of the movies we cover get adapted into stage musicals. Do you think this movie should be turned into a stage musical? The last thing this story needs is to be heightened. Yeah, absolutely not. What I mean, a terrible you, idea. You would have to tone down what exists so much to then heighten it to be a musical. Yeah. Well, this was a weird ride. This was a weird ride. This was a wild ride. It was entirely not at all what I anticipated going into I thought they would be parents, and it would be a fun parenting movie. I thought it was going to be a Pygmalion story. I had no idea what it would be. I didn't look up anything about it, because I thought I knew that Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn were in it, and I assumed I knew what it would be, which was a comedy about Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant raising a child. But I was wrong. We were wrong. 
Oh, boy. Well, next week, we will take a hard turn into a different genre. It's our Halloween episode, so we will be looking at Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead. I have not seen this movie, and nor do I know much about it. I'm and I don't really... I'm kind of scared. It'll be okay, Mark. You know me. I'm always a little scared when you make me do horror. I believe in you. But until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular help other people to find the show. All right, Will. Last question. What is the best piece of dating advice you got from bringing up baby? This is the biggest thinker we've had in a while. I think the best piece of dating advice is if you think someone needs help, use words rather than just trying to shuffle around them because Cary Grant, David, is much more able to help Susan with her torn dress when he tells her that her dress is torn than when he's trying to do it without telling her. I mean, I guess if you... Get a tame leopard and then convince that leopard to follow the person you like. They will then be forced to hang out with you as you deal with the leopard situation. I hope that situation applies to nobody. Yes, do not actually do that. (laughs) Well, until next time, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! I can't give you anything but love, baby. That's the only thing I can do, baby. Dream a while, scheme a while, you'll find happiness.